Dr. Kirsten Green is the Chair of Urology at the University of Virginia. She's a strong leader in her institution and in the urologic oncology community. In this podcast, she shares her story of strong mentors and mentorship, how creating a community of caring surgeons can strengthen the individual, the institution, and the field. I hope you enjoy. My name is Phil Perazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I've struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Operate with Zen. I have the wonderful pleasure of being joined by Dr. Kirsten Green today. Kirsten, introduce yourself to the audience. Hey, I'm Kirsten Green. I'm the chair of urology at University of Virginia and the associate chief medical officer. Um, I'm just thrilled to be here. So thank you, Phil, so much for having me on. Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure. And, you know, Kirsten and I have gotten to know each other over the years through the urologic oncology circle, as many of the guests on this show have. And it's been really nice to have her come out to the East Coast. She came closer to me than I moved further from her. Yeah. But uh, we're still all in the same section now and, and working to make the, the Mid-Atlantic urologic uh, section the, the strongest in the universe. So it's I think nice it already to- is pretty much, right? Yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, we might be a little biased, but, but we think <laughs> so. So you and I have both had really strong mentors in our careers, and we're here today to talk about mentorship. So tell us your story, right? You're now, you're the chair. You weren't always the chair. Wasn't Tell, always the chair. You were not always the chair. Tell us the story, um, kind of your brief, you know, professional history and and how you got to where you are and who some of your mentors were along the way. Okay. I can't. I have a kind of a windy road, which I think I've told different people. Um, I always wanted to be a surgeon. No one in my family is a doctor. No one's even medical. It was one of those things I just always kind of had a gut feeling I wanted to do it. And then went to medical school and was going to be a general surgeon. And I was at Hopkins and just the most amazing mentors, like so kind, so supportive. Um, I remember John Cameron, who was the chair of surgery, wrote me a letter and I got to see it, you know, in the interview, sometimes they would give you a packet, let you go between the the rooms and you're not supposed to look, but I'm just going to tell you now because it's too late to really stop me. Um, So I read my letter and it was so nice. And imagining someone of such an unbelievable stature, writing such a great letter for some random little medical student who wanted to be a surgeon. Um, So I have to say, I always had, I had very strong mentors in general surgery, went out to University of California, San Francisco, where Nancy Asher was chair, unbelievable surgeon, like just beautiful surgeon, brilliant. There's actually a Netflix show um, about her, which is incredibly inspirational. And she was inspiring to me as well. And she's a great sense of style. I mean, great shoes, great accessories, which I love, you know, pretty things as well. Um, And she was unbelievable as well. So great mentor and a female surgical mentor, which was terrific. And then I happened to rotate on urology, which I never thought about doing even though obviously Hopkins urology is unbelievable. Um, Dr. Walsh legend, just, I never did it. 
And then I rotated um, as an intern on urology, had a great time, met Peter Carroll, who's probably one of the most impactful mentors of my whole career. And I still remember I was operating with him. And as the intern, we got to pull the Foley and it was back when we did open prostatectomies. And, you know, he's like, hey, what do you want to do? And I told him my plan because I always had a, you know, really well thought out 15 year plan. Like this is where I was going to go for a fellowship and this is the research I was going to do. And it was going to be translational basic science with viral vectors and liver cancer. Um, and he's like, you know, you, you don't have to do general surgery to be a cancer surgeon. You could do urology. And, you know, I went I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering for my fellowship and because that's where I wanted to go. Um, and it just rocked my world. I was like, oh my God. And the month I spent on urology was so much fun. And Marshall Stoller, another mentor, amazing, so kind to me as an intern, right? You could just ignore the intern sometimes, but he didn't. Jack Mackinich, another unbelievable mentor, um, was program director. And it turned out that they had a vacancy. Nobody left, but they just had an open spot. And it was around the same time when I was sort of questioning whether or not I really wanted to keep doing general surgery, even though I love surgery, I just, it wasn't fitting. Um, and it was one of those life things where a variety of crazy things happened, like a, just didn't work out well. Um, and I got to switch to urology. And then I had these, you know, essentially these three unbelievable men mentor me and help me get to the goal that I wanted for my life. And there's a lot of talk nowadays about having female mentors, and I think it's super important, but I have to say some of the greatest mentors in my life, especially early on when there weren't a lot of female mentors around other than Dr. Asher, um, were men. And I have to give credit to Dr. Asher because it's not easy to lose a resident. And now as chair, I'm like, this is my nightmare is like losing a resident. But for her to be so gracious and say, not only, yes, you can leave, but you can leave N-State UCSF in the urology department. I mean, that takes a really strong person to help make that kind of transition. And she did. So um, those were my early mentors. And then I think one thing we talked about, Phil, was sometimes your friends are actually, you don't think of them as mentors, but they kind of serve in that role. And I still remember um, it was really hard moving to California. I had no friends. All my friends were on the East Coast. It was me and my fiance. And, you know, that was it. And uh, it just was tough early on just meeting other people like me. And I remember meeting Donna Dang. And Donna's a urologist. She's an amazing FPMRS, um, was at UCSF for a long time. She's a couple years ahead of me. And she was just cool and funny and great. And I still remember her coming to do a consult in the ER. And just everybody loved Donna. And she made everyone laugh. But she was a nice person and kind. And she was kind of my first great friend. She's one of my best friends in my life. But I remember thinking, like, if I could be like Donna, she's happy. She likes her job. She's fun. She's balanced. Like, I saw her and was like, I want to be like that. And that was part of why I switched to urology. Um, and I think just seeing somebody else who you feel like you want to be like, you want to, you want to emulate them. That can mean so much early on in your career and help you find your place, you know? Yeah. I think it's a, a really fine line between mentors and role models, right? And yeah. friends, right? And, and it's friends. And friends. And it's amazing when you get that kind of blending of all of them. It, it really can lead to some power, powerful relationships and, and powerful impact. Yeah. And, I think what's, and what's really interesting too is, you know, some of the people when you're a trainee who are very clearly senior people who are mentors, and then as you progress and you become fortunate to work with them, that that relationship changes and it becomes more of a peer and a, and a friendship yeah. relationship. And there are yeah. people when early on that were great mentors and role models that I never would have described as friends who over the last 15 years, 
I'm very happy to call friends now. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because at some point in time, when you make that switch, um, the advice changes a little bit. You know, it goes from like, you need to do this or apply here, do this, write this paper to much more like, here are the pros and cons of the situation, not telling you not to do something anymore or telling, uh, kind of making, letting you make your own mistakes a little bit, which I appreciate. Yeah. It's hard. You just want someone to tell you what to do, (laughs) but it is, it is interesting when the advice changes a little bit. Yeah. It's a beautiful segue into kind of the, the difference between mentoring and and coaching and in its simplistic form, you know, a mentor tells you the answer and tells you what to do and helps you get to the outcome you want where a coach helps you bring that out. And I think we're seeing a more formal evolution of that in surgical training, especially, but I think probably medical training in general, where we're seeing a lot more formal coaching, where we're helping people bring out the answers from themselves rather than just showing them the way. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's a good feeling to have a coach, whether it's formal or not formal. Um, Some of the things that I did when I was program director was to help residents kind of get the confidence they need sometimes for their robotic skills. Sometimes just having a more senior resident in there as their backup, whether it was, you know, a research resident or someone who's kind of more focused on education at that point in time, just to show them like, Hey, here's the angle or here's how you put the port in. And it wasn't, you know, it's not me as the attending being there doing the one-on-one didactic teaching or maybe the, you know, more hierarchical teaching, but it's somebody else saying, move your hand, angle the clip kind of in their ear at the bedside. And I found that had tremendous results. And then I think as faculty, that helps a lot too. You know, I would do some really challenging robotic partial nephrectomies. And as long as I knew I had seen important somewhere in the building, I knew we could do it. You know, no matter how fantastic my resident and my fellow, like she was sort of like my safety blanket, because if we were going to try something really tough, as long as you know, you got one partner who can come in and get help you in any type of situation, you can actually push the envelope a little bit more. So for me and Seema's junior to me, she was my resident. Um, but we made that same jump we were talking about where, you know, I was her faculty member and then she went off, did her fellowship, came back with my partner and is a great friend now. And we operated together all the time. And it was such a great feeling, um, having each other's back like that. Yeah. It's a hugely important, um, part. And I think the departments, um, and not necessarily just academic medicine, but I think the private practices and the groups that do well provide that. Yes. Safety blanket, whether that's somebody physically there and you're operating across the table for them, or just to know they're in the building, they have your back, they're around. Yeah. And on the flip side, as you get into leadership, realize how challenging it could be for your junior people if they feel alienated and alone and have no one else around. It can be. Absolutely. And honestly, it could lead to some adverse outcomes, um, especially not only, not only if they're kind of mentally struggling with it, but if something bad happens and there is nobody there to protect them or help them, right? Um, it could be kind of a perfect storm of bad things going on. Yeah. I think it's better for patients and it's better for our career longevity to have somebody nearby and just have that humility to say, can you just be around, you know, not feel like you have to be so tough or so strong and, or feel like there's a weakness in asking for help. We got to get past that. You know, we can't see that as weakness any longer. We need to kind of view everything as a team. And um, I think my favorite work situation was Seema Port and Max Meng and I all had OR on the same day. And everyone, you know, we kind of roll, roll through each other's rooms and kind of come in and check on each other. But if anything was going wrong, you know, at any moment, one of us would go help the other person. And 
I think it really, I think to your point, I mean, safety is the most important thing, but that humility of saying, so what, so what if I've been out of, of residency for a really long time and maybe I shouldn't need help. If I want help, I should ask for help. And there should be no judgment about that. Whether you're like a month out or you're 10 years out, it's a nice feeling. So you can ask a friend for help or just get their opinion. You know, like we can always use each other's opinions. Absolutely. And we all struggle, whether we want to admit it or not, or not to your point, there are, listen, that's why we do what we do. And and some of it is why we get enjoyment is because it's challenging. Yeah. Right. And it's great to role model model that for residents and for students as well, to see them, you know, see, you know, Max is a phenomenal surgeon, but have him ask somebody to come in and take a look. I mean, it's good for people to see that element of it too, that no matter how talented you are, you can always use help. You can always ask for someone else's opinion. And again, that's great for patient safety. And I do think our private practice colleagues have that right. Um, talking with a lot of them, you know, the senior partners mentor the junior partners and help get them up to, ski- to speed. And I think that that helps a lot. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think, you know, one of the one of the reasons I started this podcast or, or one of kind of the motivations is that, listen, surgery is a 30-year career, but we do very little to prepare for 30 years of doing this. And one of the ways to really look out for each other and, and promote long, healthy careers is to build communities yes. in our practices, in our departments. You know, it, it can even be cross-specialty, mm-hmm. right? Your vascular surgeons and your colorectal surgeons. I mean, that's the ideal world is when kind of everybody's poking in everybody's room. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and it's a real tight knit community. I think that's when things are the safest and the best. And you're seeing wonderful things happen in terms of patient care and outcomes and camaraderie and feeling well at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just having a friend at work, you know, if you go into the OR, which is an inherently very stressful place, but you know, you have your backup friends, your backup team, you have these other people who are going to be there to help you. It takes the stress down a lot. Yeah. And we'll get back to the positive, but I want to, I want to get on the negative a little bit here. I mean, we've also seen people really struggle and I think it's important to call out that when you, a lot of times we've seen junior people struggle, they isolate themselves. They don't ask for help. They feel like they're alone on an Island or even simply they do silly things like start an operation at six o'clock at night when nobody else is physically around. Yes. Yep. So we actually made a rule in my department you're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, and for our new faculty, for the first six months, they have a designated backup person who will always help them, a more senior faculty, just to give that that sense of, you know, it's so scary the first two years. It's just terrifying. You wake up, you're terrified, you do your surgery, you pretend you're not scared, but you're scared. It's scary. So if it's just laid out, like you don't get to start a case after this time at night for patient safety and for your own wellness. And, you know, if it was my family member, I wouldn't want them getting that case started at six o'clock at night. That's the wrong thing. So it's a hard decision to make as a surgeon though, because it feels like weakness, but it's not. Sometimes it's strength to be able to say, I'm not going to do this dangerous thing to just prove I'm strong or prove I'm tough. Right. Right. Yeah. It's something we talk about on this podcast, a lot of setting boundaries. And I think it's an incredibly important boundary and it's no offense to our nursing or anesthesia or OR staff, but it's by nature, the B team after night, they're not used to working with you and they're not your regular team. And we all know outcomes are better when you're working in kind of a consistent environment. And that speaks to the people in the room and the people around you. Absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of like the airline industry, like it's all has to be the same, right? One little perturbation is what causes all the trouble. And so you're distracted because 
the person doesn't have your suture, doesn't have your instrument. And it's not their fault. Like you said, that's the evening team. They don't usually do these cases. It distracts your attention away from something critical that's happening. And from that, everything else can spiral. So I think you're right. It's setting, but you can call it setting boundaries. You can talk about it being patient safety or patient centric. Um, but we have to get away from this idea of surgeons that like, oh, we're so tough. We don't need sleep. We can just suck it up and do it because we're human beings. And so are our patients. Most importantly, they deserve the very best which is not happening at a 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. start on a long case. You know, if it's an emergency case, different, but elective long case, yeah. Sure. And, and listen, I mean, things happen and there's times where, listen, you're going to have to do an operation after hours and, and we're not condemning yeah. that either. No. But, um, but you just have to be smart and intelligent about it and think, you know, would you want your family member, to your point before, right? If this was your family member, would you be doing this operation at this time or would you want somebody else doing it at this time? Mm-hmm. Or did something happen in the case previously? You know, usually when things are that pushed back, either it was a really frustrating delay or something really unexpected that happened, right? Or something maybe frustrating or difficult in the prior case and you're frazzled anyway. So with that mindset, do you really want to go into an evening case? Um, yeah. Which is why sometimes it's easier just to have a rule and say, nope, um, unless it's an extraordinary circumstance, the answer is no. Well, let's, let's stay on that vein. You do big cancer, you do big operations and things don't always go as we plan. Um, yeah. How do you, you know, now doing this for many years, um, you know, kind of how do you approach those days and those things and how do you work through them? I, I, you know, I try to prepare as much as possible. I think we're all kind of control freaks and I certainly am. So I like everything to be the same. I like, um, to know what I'm doing. I like to have the same team if I can get it now, realistically nowadays with staffing, you don't get to have the same team. Um, so I, one thing I do just, and I think it's partly to just calm my own nerves is I do a, a little huddle in the morning with the OR staff and with the anesthesia staff, because if it is somebody new and the card's not correct, you know, the card's always slightly incorrect no matter how many times you fix it. It is good to just kind of go over what are we doing is this, we have a lot of ear ass protocols. So is this an ear ass prostatectomy? Is it a kidney? Is it going to be a tough kidney? How many sutures do I need for the kidney for a partial? Um, how many bulldogs, how many vessels am I clamping? You know, just all of it. And at least it helps me. So everyone knows what we're doing. And I've at least discussed it with everyone. I'm lucky we have really great anesthesiologists, so they can pretty much do anything, but it's nice to have the whole team together just for even two minutes to say, this is what it's going to be. Um, and I think that helps quite a bit. Now, maybe you have to do it again when the shift change happens in the afternoon, but um, it helps early on to make sure you have the right equipment yeah. and then know who to call. Right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this situation where it's like, Hey, there's no more needle drivers in the hospital. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Come on. Yes, there are. So you just need to know who to find to go find the equipment. Yeah. And I was going to say, just reflecting, uh, I do a very similar thing, but also being a, a new surgeon at a new place, I think doing that huddle or that timeout with a very kind and calm demeanor yeah. sets a lot for setting the tone, right? It, as the surgeon, you're kind of, you're, you're the team leader for that operation. And if you're frantic and worked up before things even start, guess who else is worked up and frantic? Oh yeah. Um, don't expect them to calm you down. It should be the opposite. You know, right. come in, be kind, be calm, explain to them what's going on. Don't take offense if somebody doesn't know how you do an operation because that's they're not trying to you know no, ruin your yeah. day. They want yeah. a good outcome too. They just don't understand or they haven't done it before. So take your time with them. 
Yeah. And they haven't done it with you. And I think the other thing I learned as well, and it was hard going from a place where I had worked for 19 years and everybody knew me and they knew exactly how I did things to a totally new place. You just have to remember, just assume no one knows what you're going to use. Even if it's the same people, it doesn't, it, they do all different cases every day. I mean, it's not like us where we're operating a couple of days a week and we know exactly what we do because it's, it's the only thing we do. I'm not doing like breast surgery and then taking out an appendix and maybe scrubbing a heart and doing some ortho. I mean, that's what our circulators and our scrubs do, right? They do all these crazy cases. So I guess it is a little bit egotistical to say, well, you should remember exactly what I use and all my suture. So I think I've just kind of taken a step back and realized good to be gracious and do a timeout and assume nobody has any idea what you need. They do probably know, but don't assume that they should, or don't feel entitled that they should, because that's where you get the attitude. Like we do this all the time. Well, they don't, they're doing ortho and God knows what. So yeah. Yeah. You make me cringe. Cause I think about all the times when I was junior faculty and I said, how many of these do we do a year? And in retrospect, that is just so wrong yeah. to say. I feel so bad for all the crap I gave anyone ever. I should have just said thank you and shut up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure they are not listening, but, but we could both apologize to them, to them here. So. Yep. I've learned my lesson. I should have been more grateful for them and uh, I'm grateful now. Yeah. So we kind of, you know, we learn some of this ourselves, but we also see other people do this. You know, who did you see or not necessarily who, but you know, what did you see done well and, and, and not, and kind of, you know, back to the, the mentoring, you know, models here, you know, how did you, how did you learn your OR behaviors? I probably learned it from watching people. Dr. Mackinich was always so wonderful in the OR. He was always so calm. He always felt so safe. You know, he could get you out of any trouble. Um, and operating with Peter Carroll too, like he just, you know, was beautiful. He, he could do everything. Um, so I think that's part of it is just seeing people who do things so, so well and also how they handle problems. But part of it is just sort of reflecting on your, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like reflecting on my own bad behavior, um, reflecting on the things I don't like about the way I'm behaving, trying, really making an effort to be different, even if it doesn't always work, at least I know I'm really trying. And I, you know what, this is going to sound crazy, but some of the best feedback I've ever gotten is from my residents. Because just being residency director, I would try to get people to give me feedback too. So it was bi-directional, you know, I'd tell them what they did well. And then I would start to ultimately be like, what could I do better as a teacher? What could you tell me to do better? And some of them would actually tell me, and it was really helpful because if everyone just makes it seem like, oh, you're doing fine, then you're like, well, am I really doing fine? Or could I improve in a lot of different ways? And so when you start to get that honest feedback, either to your face or in, you know, anonymous um, evaluations, it actually does help. Yeah. I think it helps a ton. And, you know, listen, the feedback comes with pain and it's hard. Yeah. Um, it hurts to hear you're not doing something well, cause we all want to oh, do terrible. well, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I, I, one of the things I try and teach and lay on is listen, I'm going to tell you something you're not going to like, but it's because I want you to get better because I believe you can get better. And we have to take the same things ourselves. Listen, somebody's going to say something about you. You're not, the first reaction is they're full of it. That's not true. There's no way I'm doing that. They may not be a hundred percent right, but there's always a grain of truth. Very few people totally are making something up out of the air. So take it, take it for what it is. Understand, even if it may not be true, there's a perception that it's true and change that perception, make it better. Yeah. I mean, it's true for them, whether it's not true for you and you're right. 
it hurts. Um, but it probably also hurts when we say, you know, that was a bad throw or that clip didn't go down or, you know, any of the feedback we give our learners that isn't great positive feedback, even if we don't think we're saying something mean or we don't intend to hurt their feelings, like you said, you're going to tell them something they don't want to hear. It hurts them. So it, it's uh, it's good for us to get that feedback too, to remember what it feels like. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point there too, Kirsten, is, you know, listen, it hurts enough to hear you made a bad throw or made a bad move in the operating room. You don't have to be a jerk when you deliver that news. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's tough though. Yeah. It's It's definitely not easy, especially Mm -hmm. when stakes are high and emotions are high and it's part of what we do on a, on a daily basis. Right. I want to get back to your relationship with, Max and Seema in particularly. And okay. one of the things that's really fun to talk about that you and I have kind of talked about before is upward mentoring. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you've talked about that with Seema. I'm sure you had the same relationship with Max and it kind of goes back and forth. You know, tell us your concept of upward mentoring and how that works and we'll go from there. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this because I was, I think the context was I was mentioning when you kind of hit that mid-career point, um, you're doing so well that probably the people who were your mentors don't feel like they really need to mentor you or sponsor you or help you anymore because you're already doing well. You know, you're mid-career, maybe you're associate professor, maybe you're full professor, but it doesn't mean that you don't want to still achieve or do new things or meet new people. Um, And I think it's really easy for people at that point in their career to just sort of fall into this sort of swamp of like nothing's new and what's next and where's my next challenge. And so what really was great for me is again, going back to my friend Seema, is when she came and joined our faculty. Seema is one of the most outgoing people in the world and she's brilliant and phenomenal and and great. And it was such an interesting situation because she introduced me to a whole new group of people. In fact, Phil, I think she might've introduced me to you. She, cause I'm like a little shy and you know, sometimes it's just hard to, it's hard to meet new people without someone introducing you. And I just think it's such a nice thing for, um, for all of us to just think about introducing each other, whether you're senior, you're junior, or your peers to somebody new or expand your circle rather than kind of like keep all the connections you have. You know, some people approach it that way and don't really share, but just to kind of be like Seema Porton and just say the whole world is a party full of people she wants to meet and she wants her friends to all get to know each other. So it was, it was a turning point in my career. Absolutely. And I think it's such a wonderful idea for us to do for others, whether you are junior and you want to introduce, you know, one of your mentors or sponsors to someone new um, and help them out. It, it can also kind of rejuvenate your career a little bit, you know, it gives you sort of like a whole new fresh outlook, a new group of people. Um, maybe, you know, go off and be a chair somewhere like I did. So, yeah. Well, tell us about that transition. How did, how did you know it was time to be a chair? I, you know, I had a couple of conversations with some of my mentors who are external and you just kind of get this itchy feeling. And it's probably around like eight to 10 years where the surgery is not scary anymore, which is great. You know, it's not nice. It's, it's nice to not be scared anymore with surgery. And, um, you're, like I said, you're doing well, you've got your patients going fine. You, you know, whatever it is that you find really fulfilling, whether it's education or research or both, that's all doing well. And maybe you've already achieved some like vice chair positions or director level or something, you know, you're doing something other than just your clinical work, your research, and you've achieved some level of, um, of leadership. And it just doesn't, it's kind of like, well, what else, you know? And it's a, I feel like it's a branch in the road. You can either keep doing what you're doing and be happy with that, 
or you can try something totally new to get a new experience, maybe learn something different. And neither one is right or wrong. You know, I think back to my career at UCSF and I loved it and I love all my friends and I miss them and I miss my students and my residents. I had a great thing going and um, it, it was great and it could have stayed that way forever. And I could have just chosen to, to stay there and, and be happy with what I had. And some part of me just kind of felt like I needed something new. Like I wanted to do something different and I was ready for the next level of decision-making. And I don't know how else to explain it, but I think at some point we all kind of get to that, that branch in the road where you're either going to stick with what you got. Cause it's awesome. Or are you really going to radically change everything and try something new and try to learn something different? I will say the idea of, Hey, let's do something new and try something different. It sounds great. It's really freaking hard, especially when you've got something great going for you to uproot your life, shake everything up. Learning is hard. Um, it really makes me respect our students and our residents, that uncertainty of not knowing what the hell you're doing, or, you know, are you good at this? Are you not good at this? Trying to acquire new skills. It's tough. They're gutsy people, our students and residents. Absolutely. Well, we were there one day, you know, Yeah, but it's easy to forget when everything kind of starts to go really well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you could, for people who are, they could even just be starting their career pondering kind of, you know, there's people who you go to med school with and you do residency with who say, I'm going to be a chair. That's my career trajectory. That's where I'm going. I don't know if you were one of those people. I'm assuming yeah, I was. <laughs> you were. There you go. See, there's, there's your answer. Yeah. Um, I am not, I was not. And now, you know, I'm not a chair, but I'm, I'm in a leadership uh, position and you're right. Like kind of those evolutions come about and it's either you're ready for them or you're not. And there's nothing right or wrong with that. But what kind of advice do you give to people early in their career who think that they want to go down that road? Oh, that's a really good, that's a good question. I think in retrospect, kind of knowing what I know now, you have to really like managing the details and you have to like managing people and talking with people about problems. If you are someone who's like, I'm not a details person, then you probably should not be a chair because being a chair is all about the details. It's all about, and if you don't like having difficult conversations, I mean, nobody likes difficult conversations, but if you don't like helping solve problems for people, you know, like listening to people and letting them share their thoughts, whether you agree or disagree, um, it's, it's, I can't remember who told me this recently, but like, it's a people business. It's a people job being a chair. It's not, um, and maybe it's not what it was anymore. You know, it's a lot more of um, recruiting, retaining, trying to make things better for others. It's really not, at least the way I view it, it's not so much about me and my career anymore. It has to be around, about everyone around me succeeding. So you have to get some enjoyment from that. And some people do, and some people don't. I kind of think program directors kind of have a natural edge in that sense, because that's what you do for your students or anyone who's in medical education. That's what you do for your your medical students or your residents or your fellows. Um, so I think if you like that path, it's a natural transition. And there's a lot of other natural transitions, but it can't just be about, oh, I just want to have this job or I want to have this authority or this power because there's not a lot of authority or power. It's more about just helping people achieve their goals and keeping the business running. And you kind of have to like the business element of it too. It's so make sure you like those things. That's what I would say. And is there anything in, in retrospect you wish you'd been kind of more prepared or kind of paid more attention to through residency or early career that would have, you think, helped you at this point? Yeah. If I could have known the nuances of the, like, the business of medicine, 
that would have been very helpful. I think in a lot of academic places, you don't really get to know that that well. You know, it's either run for you very well by your institution, so you never really have the insight, um, or only a few people know it really well in your department, but not everyone. It's not common knowledge. I would have loved um, to know more about that or to do some of the different courses that are available along those lines, because I find that absolutely fascinating. And so I have to kind of find it on my own, which is fine because I really like it. It's almost like a like a game, you know, like winning the game. But um, I God, I would have loved to know that just to have a sense of, you know, people talk about funds flow and it. It, it's like a made up word. It means a million different things to a million different people, but wherever you are, you think, you know, what funds flow means. Like I thought funds flow meant dollar per RVU. <laughs> it doesn't, it's just a, a nebulous. It could be a widget. You could talk, talk about, call it anything you want. Um, it's just make-believe. So knowing all the different elements of that and, and the different uh, laws um, and regulations and talking about different ways to get paid so that is interesting to me, and I wish I knew more about it. But you have to seek that out. You're not going to get it necessarily. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So if you have residents, trainees, junior faculty who are interested in these things, do you make things available for them? You know, kind of what's the evolution of that at, at your place, or not even necessarily now? What's your, you know, where's it going? I think we need to learn more about it, but there's not a great way to learn. You know, there are some courses you can go to, to learn more about it. There's always kind of coding courses at the AUA, which I never attended, but now I'd love to go to. Um, I think institutionally, it's going to be different each place where you are. So one thing that we are doing here is we have a great coding team. And I think coders don't really know how, if you're interested or you're not interested, right? But if you are interested and you partner with your coding team, they can really do, so they do one-on-ones with all of us. They meet with us quarterly now and say, here's all the codes that I changed and here's why. Here's what you should have done to get a higher code or a lower code, or did you do this? Or did you think about this? Or when I read your note, it would be great if you said X, Y, and Z, if you did it, but if you didn't, those types of things. I mean, I think we have resources available to us, but I just don't, we're not making the connection. So we're doing that as a faculty now, making that connection with our coders and kind of talking, um, a little bit more about new initiatives and not just thinking about them like, hey, we're going to start gender affirming surgery, but hey, we're going to start gender affirming surgery. What are the codes? What are the pro fees? What's the facility fee? How do we code this? Should we work with a particular payer? So there's a lot more to starting something new and getting the residents involved in that right from the beginning. Um, If they're interested, which a lot of them are, that's a great learning experience. But instead of just saying, I want resume, kind of saying, okay, you want resume. So this is what it pays. And this is the facility fee. And this is what it costs at an ambulatory surgery center. And here's what it costs in the hospital. And here's what it costs somewhere else. And trying to see how does that actually work out? I think it makes it better for us as surgeons, because the next time we're going to say, I want X, you know how to think about it because maybe you want it, but it's never going to reimburse. It's going to you know bankrupt your department or your hospital or your practice. So I think it's uh I, and I'm babbling because I like this stuff so much. I think it's really interesting, but it teaches all of us to be better stewards of our resources and also teaches us how to get the technology that we think really will benefit patients and make a good argument for it. Yeah, I think that's huge. I I was volunteered for the value analysis committee. I'll put it that way at, at Hopkins a long time ago. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most valuable experiences I ever had because you learn not only what is efficacy, but kind of what is cost efficacy, right? And what do things actually cost? Is it just clinically equivalent? Is it clinically better? And where are the costs? And obviously now we're starting to think about things like sustainability in addition to that. 
But I think if you are interested in that, exposing yourself through committees, even if you're just a fly on the wall, not a voting member, just to sit there and learn these things are incredibly valuable. Um, I agree with you completely. And I think we could do a better job of exposing people. Mm -hmm. I try now when I do a case, I will talk to, if I have a chief resident with me, I'll talk to the chief typically about codes. Uh, you know, I think it's a little much to overwhelm the juniors and the interns with what you're coding and billing for, but, but chief residents and senior residents who are going to be in practice within a year or 18 months, it's certainly worth having those conversations. Hey, when I'm doing this case, this is what I'm billing and this is what I'm, why I'm billing that. And this is the documentation you need to support that. Right. And the other part that's interesting, um, and you might find this interesting as well is from a health system perspective, which I never really got to see until I was in the ACMO role is, you know, different service lines or different, um, different disease states being profitable, not profitable, right. In terms of where do you grow your business? And what I thought was fascinating was some things were deemed not really profitable, but it had to do with OR expenses and time. And so it goes to the heart of, you know, if you're taking eight hours to do a case that should take two, it's not profitable. It's also not good for your patient. Of course, it's not good for the hospital because you should be doing multiple cases, not just one eight hour case. But it is interesting to know where that intersection between you're doing the case too long, the balance between teaching, between education, patient safety, and also sustainability and being a good steward is with the time element of it, which I never really thought about before. And I, no one had ever really spoken to me about before. So I thought that was, you know, we talk about it from a safety standpoint of yeah. cases going too long, but um, from the financial standpoint, it's interesting as well. Yeah. And, and the other part is kind of the academic or research side of it, whether you're participating in that or not, you know, when we write standard operating procedures for cancer, we put the billing codes in the back of the SOP. So everybody's using the same, you know, it's kind of expected that you're using the same codes, using the same diagnosis codes, using the same billing codes so that we can track these things and actually see what we're doing. Cause listen, our administrators aren't so interested in our cancer outcomes, but we are. Yeah. Um, and so if we code right upfront, we can track these things a lot better. And it also goes to the heart of, you know, we get cost per case and some people are more expensive because they use certain things and some people are less expensive because they don't use certain things. And whether it could be like a thrombin product or a stapler or certain stitches or whatever, it's more than just the cost per case. If you're taking, if you take the time element into account and also complications. So if someone's taking two hours faster, but using a piece of equipment that maybe is a thousand dollars that person is actually more cost-effective than someone who's taking double the OR time because OR time is like $100 a minute or more. Right. So it's, it's just interesting to think about those calculations as well. Absolutely. And then on the flip side, if 50% of their patients are bouncing back because they're too quick in the operating room, right. then, you, then you, you've got a, a different calculation. Exactly. Or yeah, I mean, if they're bouncing back or having complications or needing a blood transfusion in a time when there's a blood shortage, when you could just put a product down that wouldn't cause a bleeding cell. There's a lot more to it than just cost per case. Yeah. Now, yeah. listen, you've hit another one of my interests here and uh, we could talk on this forever, but um, I want to get into in our last kind of segment here. You're one of the strongest women in urology <laughs> and urologic cancer. And a, <laughs> I don't know. And a leader. I mean, yeah. physically strong. Yeah. I well, yeah. You're like the Hulk. You're, nobody knows that. You're like the Hulk, but I'm very strong. No, uh, strong leader. Sorry. Sure. You're you. one of the strongest, you know, women leaders in our field. And you're a phenomenal role model for men and women in the field who are interested <laughs> in you. that. And, you know, I'd just like to hear your story. You mentioned some strong male and female mentors yeah, and kind of your evolution and where you think we're, we're going there and how we can get better. 
Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's very, very nice. I don't know if that's true, but I am very flattered and I really appreciate it. Um, I've had great mentors. I've been very fortunate. And I think going forward, we just have to look around and make sure we're giving everybody a helping hand and remember to be humble. And um, something I try to be sensitive about is I don't I don't want to just encourage women. You know, I want to encourage women, obviously, like I think naturally that's something that's so close to my heart, but I don't want men to feel alienated as well. So it's, you know, it's, it has to be a balance. Like anyone should feel able to contact me or contact you equally, right? Like you want to also inspire women. You want to inspire men. I think we have to be a little careful to not pigeonhole all of us into, I'm only a female mentor and you're only a male mentor, right? We should be helping everybody. We should all be helping each other all the time. So I think that might be an element of it. And I, I, I like to remind people, I got where I am because I had strong mentors who were men. So it's not like men can't mentor women and help women. We, we all should be helping each other. So maybe where are we going? I mean, I hope one day there is no gender element of it at all. We're just mentors because that's the ideal situation, right? Where gender doesn't matter. We're yeah. none of them. Where yeah. a person is a person, a surgeon is a surgeon. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have a gender that you even identify with, it should it should be a non-issue. All of it. Yeah. That's where I want us to go. I hear you, and and uh, you know, on a personal note, you know, I have two little girls, and if one of them wants to be the surgeon, I mean, it's my hope that it's not an issue, right? And that they're a surgeon because they want to be a surgeon and they're a good surgeon. Yeah. Um, but there certainly are issues there and you see unfair treatment of people um, based on gender, based on color, based on where they grew up and what their background is. And it's a really hard balance of trying to be equal and fair, but make sure you're giving everyone an opportunity. And I think we all struggle with it now. Um, and I think you're a great example of how to do it well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think the other part of it is um, I, and I don't know if you feel this way as well. I think back to all those times I didn't speak up when I should have. Um, and I try to remember them and just make sure I speak up every time now, you know, it, part of me was like, well, choose your battles. You know, if somebody says something to you, just let it go. But if, and it's harder maybe to advocate for your own self, but it, if you're like me, you can advocate for other people a little bit more easily. Like it's easier to speak up and say, don't, you know, don't say that that's not right. Um, and don't let it go there. And if there's something big, don't let it go Just speak up. Even if, you know, even if nobody else believes in you, there's this one thing that, um, I had to speak up and it was very unpopular, um, to change, but I really, really felt like it had to change. And, um, sometimes you have to make the change, even if it's not popular, because yeah. you got to do this right. That's great advice. I mean, you and I are having a bunch of mea culpas today. I mean, there's there's times in my uh, a career where I should have stood up and I didn't. Um, but I will tell you, as bad as I feel about those situations, it gave me the strength to stand up now. Um, yeah. And it still happens. And there's still times where I, I walk the line and you hear a joke in the operating room or something off color. And you need to address it because it's not uh, it's not appropriate. And um you know, we need to be respectful of people and we need to promote people. And, and, you know, it's, it's challenging. And I think one of the other parts of that is it's okay to say you're sorry. Um, I remember a very distinct, uh, a, a very, I'll give a very concrete episode because I've apologized to this resident multiple times since it's happened, but I was a junior faculty member. I had a 
uh, a, a female chief resident who was very strong and was a great surgeon, great surgically. We went in to see a patient post-op and the patient said something along the lines, uh, either called her a nurse or said, you're a doctor or something along those lines. And it was so absurd. Like she was clearly wearing a badge that said surgeon and a you know, white coat that said doctor yeah. that I just started laughing and I didn't correct it. And I felt so bad after that, that I didn't, um, that I've apologized to her multiple times. She knows how serious I am about this and I will never let that happen again. You know, people get addressed properly. They are who they are. And I try to always introduce people. So it's not an issue. This is Dr. So-and-so. She was the surgeon in your case with me. And, you know, that way it's, it's never an issue. And I never want that to happen to somebody else. You're a good guy, Phil. I try. I try. So we're getting uh, close to our hours. Is there anything else you want to talk about today? Anything you want to tell the audience about? (sighs) So many things. (laughs) Um, I guess just, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough career and there are going to be times when you feel like you're stuck or this is it, or there's really nothing else. And, um, I felt that way too. Like, well, I guess this is it forever. It's just going to be like this forever. And it's okay to feel that way. And it's okay to wallow for a little while, but you can't just keep thinking that forever, you know? And if you kind of, if you're in a situation where you're like, ah, oh, there's nothing, if you get so negative about a situation and you can't get yourself positive, you're going to have to find a way out of it. You can't just keep wallowing and complaining about a situation on and on and on. And um, that would be something to think about. And I, I think the solution to that is try something new, meet someone new, find something new to do, challenge yourself because getting shaken out of your comfort zone is the best way to stop that spiral of like, well, I guess this is all there is and uh, everything sucks. And, you know, we all do that sometimes we're all, I think type A personalities, we're all very intense and um, we can be prone to maybe thinking that a situation, you know, grass is always greener, but if you try something new, that discomfort we were talking about, that feeling of not being good at something, of not being sure of getting feedback that maybe makes you unhappy, it does shake you out of this, this uh, complacency. So if anyone out there is listening and feels like you're sort of in a rut, go find something new. And it doesn't matter if anybody else thinks it's good or not. I mean, there are all kinds of programs. There's AUA leadership. There's all kinds of different things to do. Get involved in a different society. Or, I mean, there's so, there's SUO, there's SAU, there's whatever your specialty is. That's not oncology. Like the two of us, there's something you can help with that you can learn about. You can meet different people. And I, for me, I think it was really helpful just to find a new avenue and find, um, get out of my comfort zone a little bit. I think that's phenomenal. I think that's great advice for, for people out there listening. And I would say the last part of that is, um, in addition to finding something new, rely on your community, rely on the people. Um, as you said, whether you're mentors or coaches, whether you're mentoring up or mentoring down, those are the people you come to rely on and your friends. And, you know, you've become one of them over the year. You know, we grab each other at meetings, what's going on, what's new, you know, you're having a bad day or a bad time, or you're having a good time and a good day. It's, it's fun to celebrate those things too. Yes. Or talk about something new or some new way you figured something out. I mean, that's great. And in terms of doing something new, I made it sound like it was all work-related. I remember I started doing yoga and I hadn't done it before. Um, 
And, you know, it's really hard, especially if you're not really coordinated, like I'm not super athletic or coordinated trying to do these crazy things. And I was like, man, this is great that I'm learning this new thing because I'm teaching my residents like every day in the OR. And, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to be patient if you're not an inherently patient person. Um, but even learning something new outside of work is just a good reminder that you're not good at everything. You're not, that's the key. You're not good at everything. So, um, gives you a little bit of patience and grace for the people that you're teaching. Well, um, I want to thank you, Kirsten. It's been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you. You know, we've talked about mentors and mentorship and coaching and relationships. We've talked about the finances of surgery and how we (laughs) can get better at that. But I think, I think one of the most important messages I put down for the day is working for others and kind of building community. And yes, we have a career and we have a trajectory and we have all of these things that we want to do, but we are better as a community and as a group and working for others really makes everything better. So thank you for sharing that message with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you. It's great talking with you always and look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay. Take care.